Well, good morning. I kind of want to say that for those who stayed home for the storm, uh, they're missing my best sermon this year. <laughs> but you guys have to endure my worst sermon this year because it's my only sermon this year. Uh, as a reminder, we're gathering uh, before service. Mackenzie's laughing at me with my dad jokes. Um, for prayer, you can join us at 10 o'clock where we're going to pray for our service, uh, for our evangelism, especially leading up toward Easter, uh, as well as uh, for any prayer requests that you all have. So we had uh, a few families join us uh, for that. So we'd hope you would join us next week. So we're in Acts chapter 8 as we continue uh, in our series. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 8 starting in verse 4. Uh, when you find it, we stand for the reading of the Word of God together. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity and Simon answered pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans and Father we thank you for this word we thank you for uh, how it can and will accomplish its purpose to encourage us to direct our gaze upon you that we might see the true greatness in the church is you through the work of your son for your glory and for our joy and so would you help us to worship you and give you that glory this morning 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So one of my favorite heroes in the faith, his name is William Carey. He was an 18th century missionary. He left England and all that he had there, and he went to India uh, to be a pioneer missionary to a desperate and lost people who needed to hear the gospel. And he once proclaimed to a gathering of Christians, uh, seeking for them to heed the call of God on their lives to evangelize the lost. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And so Carrie, he called folks to great things, but for the sake of God's name. And today's message is about the greatness in the church. And up front, I'm going to tell you, the greatness of the church isn't us. The greatness of the church is God. And Acts 8 will show us that attempting great things for us might be considered great, but in the end, it will lead to spiritual danger and to spiritual peril. Because we see that Philip has gone to Samaria and he did some great things. The crowd had great joy. The gospel has reached these outcasts, these Samaritans, which is a great thing, right? But God's counterintuitive, his strategic plan, he takes Philip to an unlikely target. And that's what God does through pioneer missionaries. Because churches, we love our strategic plans that we'll do this and then we'll go do that after that and we'll move forward as a body of believers. But the early church's strategic plan started with persecution. We saw that last week as Stephen was stoned to death and he was a martyr or a witness. And now the gospel goes to the people of Samaria, to a place known, or rather not known, for their greatness, especially in the eyes of the people of Israel. Because in the people of Israel, after the Assyrians conquered the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, some of the Jews remained in that area, and the Assyrians sent folks into that area, and they intermingled with the Jewish people. That's one of the reasons why there's tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this led to syncretism or blending or distorting religious practices. When you mix one group of people with another group of people, they started to mix together their religious practices and distorted the religious practices of the Jewish people. But when these Samaritans were encountered with the message of the risen Christ, the subsequent miracles associated with Philip, the Samaritans responded with joy. Things are going great. But if you look in verse 9, the text says, but. There's a significant contrast or change in what is taking place in the text. The great things are happening, but a great man named Simon shows us that not everything is going well. The Samaritans, they think that Simon is a great man, but he practices magic. This is a personal syncretism that he engages in. 
And Philip, he proclaims the gospel, and many, we see, believed and were baptized. But then Luke records in verse 13, even Simon believed. And it's not to be, oh, yes, and Simon was one of them to believe. It's supposed to be shocking for us that it's an unexpected turn of events in the text that many were, believe, or were believing and baptizing, but really few repented. And Simon becomes the example stands out amongst the many of the Samaritans. And unlike the early church that was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, we see Simon's devoted to Philip, following him around like my dog does when we have some steak bones left over after dinner. Simon was astonished. He was obsessed with the power of the apostles, not the greatness of God. And then we see the apostles, they get word that the gospel has come and people are believing and so they come down to Samaria and they lay hands on the Samaritans and the spirit arrives. Some would suggest that Peter and John, they come down to be kind of a connection and as we see the gospel moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, that they are the ones that need to be there to do that. Others would say that there's a special power that comes from men or people within the church laying hands on other folks, and then that's how the Spirit arrives. But I would suggest something else. As we look at the entire book of Acts, we see and we remember what Peter said in Acts 2. Verse 38, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As a response to their belief, they repent. As a response to their belief, they're baptized. As a response to their belief, believers receive the Holy Spirit. When one believes the gospel, believers receive the Spirit. Nothing special needs to happen. And likely the Samaritans didn't have true belief when they were baptized. I think what comes next helps to validate that because Simon, like I said, becomes the case study, becomes the example for us to see that his greatness becomes a distraction from the greatness of God, which is in the church and why the church exists. Laying hands upon the Samaritans by these apostles didn't invoke the Spirit to arrive, nor did their baptism because that happened prior to the Spirit arriving. Pentecost, back in chapter 2, showed us that we believe and we receive the Spirit. And we see Simon's synchronistic beliefs. They remain part of who he is and what he gives himself to. It appears that his faith was superficial that his faith wasn't genuine, that it was inadequate. And I think what happens next confirms that he's an example of what happens with the lack of true saving faith. Luke takes us back to Simon. Look at verse 18. Simon thought he could buy the power because people buy Simon's power. They give him perform magic tricks but without true belief, without the Spirit, the Spirit does come upon the Samaritans when they believe, but not Simon. He becomes an example of unbelief because he misses the greatness of God 
in the gospel. Simon, he wanted power. He wanted to maintain his syncretism. He didn't have true saving faith because Simon expected great things of himself, not great things from God. And Peter understands this, right? From personal experience, he understands when you put yourself before God that things don't go well for you. Jesus rebuked him for that. And because Simon Peter loves Simon the magician, he says and corrects him with a loving rebuke. Because Peter knows that privilege and accountability comes with leadership in the church. And so he seeks to correct Simon the magician's bad theology. He says, may your money and you perish. Like we just sang, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. Simon Peter calls out Simon the magician to repent of his wickedness. The greatness of a church isn't in its people, the greatness of a church isn't in its pennies or money. It's not even in its property. The greatness of the church is in God and God alone. And flipping those things is dangerous. Peter calls it wickedness. The love of money is all over this book of Acts. We've seen that, right? If you go back to the early church, they were generous towards one another. They sold things and gave it to one another. And then in chapter 5, which comes after chapter 4, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where they dropped dead because of their greed and their deceit. Because greed is destructive, and true greatness is in our spiritual poverty. And Peter saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead before his eyes, and he does not want that to happen to Simon the magician. So he says, basically, to hell with you and your money. Even though the gospel was proclaimed, Simon the magician responded in greed for personal greatness. He wanted power. He didn't want God. And after Peter rebukes him, his desperation is clear in his petition. What does he say? Play, pray for me. It's where Simon's story ends. Without hope. Without true belief. He heard the gospel. He didn't respond to the gospel because he didn't understand it. And Simon missed the greatness of the church in God himself. And the story moves on. The jaw-dropping disbelief of Simon should give us, church, a cause for reflection. The man seeking power was left helpless. He who could buy what he wanted because he was wealthy as a magician was unable to require what he truly needed. And I think Jesus' words ring a bell here, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or wickedness. And that's not meant to scare us, but it's to give us a cause for consideration of our own faith. Where Simon heard, but he didn't act in accordance with true belief, proving that he didn't truly believe. He missed the greatness of God, seeking greatness for himself. And the story ends 
with hopelessness for Simon. And when we sit with things that are uneasy for us, when we hear difficult things from Scripture, I'd encourage you to consider that maybe the Spirit is calling you to consider your own belief. The Bible has hard things for us to consider, and considering them in light of God's grace should cause us to run to God as a father who delights to respond to us. Where we can proclaim as that father who came to Jesus says in Mark 9, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, would you do great things in my heart for your name's sake? So tomorrow's our anniversary for Kristen and I, and I'm reminded often that Kristen and I are very difficult, or not difficult people, different people. <laughs> I'm the difficult person in the marriage, but you'd probably be surprised, or not surprised when I say that Kristen is very crafty and I'm not. I'm very organized and she's not, and there's ways that our marriage helps us to help each other, to grow more like Christ. That God, even in many of your marriages, has put two very different people together to help you to become more like Christ. Acts 8 doesn't leave us longing. God helps us with a different story, a story that's contrasted with Simon the magician, showing the true greatness of the church is for the poor and helpless. And so next, Philip engages with an Ethiopian eunuch. And he shows us the true greatness in the church. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seating in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is, is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. He who describes, who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? And about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Simon was that perceived insider who proved to be an outsider. 
The Ethiopian, on the other hand, is an outsider who proves to be an insider. And this is the perfect opposite to show us where the true greatness in the church lies. Were Samaritans, they rejected the temple, and the eunuch wasn't even allowed to enter the temple. But greatness in the church centers around God, not man. God directs all these circumstances, and it's a counterintuitive example for a reason that this is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. Because God directs Philip to go to a deserted place without a lot of people, so the greatness of the church focuses on God and not man. God's strategic plan, it looks different than ours. This isn't a chance meeting on the road. God providentially orchestrates all of this and coordinates it all so that God might get the glory that he alone deserves. Where Simon was a rich man because of his magic, the eunuch had nothing. He was a steward for the queen of Ethiopia. Whereas Simon was syncretistic, where he added to his, these Samaritan practices some things of the Jewish people. The opposite is true of the eunuch, even though he is syncretistic as well because he's from Africa. He goes to Jerusalem. He's reading the Bible. He wants to worship God. But by command of God, Philip doesn't just walk slowly. He runs to the eunuch when God tells him to go. He inquires of him, what are you reading? Can I help you with what you are reading? Can I help you apply it to your life? Like Stephen, Philip is a man of the scriptures and when he's given the opportunity, he shares the gospel. Friends, the Bible is personal, but it's never meant to be private. It is supposed to be interpreted and applied within the context of the body of believers. And Philip, he engages with this Ethiopian eunuch in some one-to-one -one Bible reading. The eunuch is reading from Isaiah 52 and 53. Where Simon wanted to lead, the eunuch was led. Simon wanted to speak up, the eunuch actually remains silent and he listens. Simon wanted, to greatness, wanted greatness, but the eunuch submits to the greatness. That Isaiah passage, it's about the suffering servant, the true greatness of the church. Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for the church, laying down his life for his friends. And so given the opportunity, Philip preached the good news about Jesus that God is holy, righteous, and good, and sin came into the world through Adam and Eve leading to death, but Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, lived a perfect die life. He died a sinner's death, was buried, and rose to give life to those who would believe the gospel. Where Simon was baptized without true belief, the eunuch believes, and he asks Philip, hey, there's some water over there. What would prevent me from being baptized there? And Philip understands the eunuch truly believed that he is converted, so he says nothing. He baptizes the brother because neither ethnic background or social status or geographic ties, nothing hinders anyone from hearing the gospel, or at least nothing should hinder anybody from hearing the gospel. And also, when someone believes, nothing should hinder anyone who believes the gospel from being baptized. Where God providentially leads Philip to the desert, 
to talk to the eunuch. And he even providentially provides water in the desert to baptize this eunuch. The greatness of the church is not in men. It's in God. And even after the baptism, to make and prove the point even further, God takes Philip off to another place. The eunuch's response was, well, where's my pastor? It wasn't, where's the guy who baptized me? He doesn't respond with, oh, I guess he's gone. I just might as well not participate anymore. He doesn't even say where to go. What does he do? He worships God. Transformed by the grace of God, the eunuch naturally, spirit-led, rejoices and worships. Whereas the story with Simon left us longing without any hope, the story of the eunuch leaves us rejoicing. The greatness of the church isn't the preacher. The greatness of the church isn't the evangelist. The greatness of the church isn't even the conversions or the baptisms. The greatness of the church is in God. When the apostles left Simon, they went back preaching the gospel in different villages on their way back to Jerusalem, and Philip finds himself in another place. And what does he do? He does the same thing. He finds himself in a new town with new people who need to hear the gospel, and so he speaks up. He keeps preaching the gospel. Remember that quote from William Carey. It said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. It's not expect great things from us, attempt great things for God. God's providential hand is over these two stories. It's also not expect great things from God, attempt great things for us. Longing for power leaves the church starving, but being a tool for God's greatness to be made manifest leaves the church rejoicing. We come back to the theme that we've seen, I think, every single week that we've gone uh, through the book of Acts, of repentance. Repentance is turning from our sin and following God's way of living towards and according to the scriptures. And it takes humility to hear that. It takes humility to trust that. It takes humility to take the focus off of ourselves, to direct it towards the greatness of God so that we can apply these things to us as a church. And so I think there's three things that we can remember in light of what we've seen in the greatness of the church, being in God and God alone. One is our own repentance, to leave behind the things that we do for our attention. Where Simon had money and greatness, but proved to have nothing. The eunuch had nothing, all the while we see he had everything he needed. Our world tells us that life is about us. It's not. The world says, do what makes you happy. It won't. Social media tells, post that photo, post that quote so that you get likes or someone shares it, something become viral. We can say that again now, right? It's like, it's 2024, COVID-19 started in 19, it's almost five years now. The world tells us to acquire a bunch of stuff, 
to make us happy. It won't. Everything that this world provides for us will leave us longing. God's greatness drives our focus towards Him. Like Stephen last week, he was a man in God's presence, focused on heaven. And he gives us an example of letting everything go for the sake of knowing Christ alone. God's glory is where we find our greatest joy. Our catechism question two from a few months ago says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why Luke is calling those reading the book of Acts over and over again to repentance. So how may God want you to repent of your lack of focus on His greatness? Second, finances come up again in the book of Acts. Peter rebuked Simon for his desire for acquisition because we're stewards, we're not owners of anything and God entrusts to us stuff so that we can steward that for his greatness. If you're a guest with us, I just wanna say we don't want anything from you. We don't pass an offering plate so that you drop money into it. We just wanna give guests the gospel. But church, Jesus rebuked a, Babia a parable, some stewards that don't do anything with what's been entrusted to them. And now that we have a new roof, almost, we got a boiler on the way, eventually, we cover your prayers as leaders. What does God want next of us as a church? It's a balance, right? We don't want money burning a hole in our pockets, but at the, end, at the same time, we don't just want to give it all away. We want to steward what's been entrusted to our care. And so maybe God has given us as a church resources to use for his kingdom. We've been blessed. We had a good giving year. Attendance is up when it's not snowing. But I talked with the friends this last week and we reminded each other that desperate churches are more prayerful churches. Needy churches are more dependent churches. And like I said, it doesn't mean that we need to give everything away, but it should give us some sobriety. Simon the magician, right? He brought wealth but was left with nothing. The eunuch brought nothing, but left with everything. So would you pray for your leaders as we steward what's been entrusted to our care? We don't wanna to lead too quickly, pulling the church and dragging the church along. We don't wanna to lead too forcefully, running over the church, but we wanna lead with the church. And it's a delicate dance. Last few years, we were able to give significant gifts to organizations we support. In 2021, we gave a big gift to the Ratton family, right? If you remember that, so that they could build a ministry house. And guess what they moved into this weekend? Their ministry house. Last year, we gave a big gift because God had given us extra resources to nets. And yesterday, I sat in a room with four or five guys that are prayerfully considering joining as residents this coming fall to potentially plant churches and pastor churches here in New England. 
Generosity is an easy response to God's greatness so that his name would be even more renowned in the world we live in. But personally, consider even your own finances. We don't give to earn favor with God. We give because God has been so generous to us so that we respond in generosity towards his work that he wants to accomplish through us. We give to the work of ministry so that the gospel continue to go forward to the ends of the earth, which starts on the roads and the streets that we live on. So how may God want you to repent of any misappropriation of resources entrusted to your care? Finally, baptism. It comes up again, twice in the text. The Samaritans' belief in baptism proved to be premature, but the eunuch's belief in baptism proved to be genuine as Philip baptizes. And baptism is one of two sacraments or ordinances of the church given by Jesus to remember and to reflect on his sacrifice of atonement for the Christian because baptism and the Lord's Supper is for Christians. It's for those who believe the gospel, the ones whom Jesus died for. That's what baptism signifies. Baptism is a visible word. It's a picture that illustrates a biblical truth. And when we see baptism, when we experience baptism the words of the Bible should remind us and come to mind this is what Jesus has done for me he died so I die to myself he rose so I rise and I live a new life where baptism like communion is a visible sign of an inward transformation where we remember the gift of God through the person and work of Jesus remembering so that our faith might increase. When was the last time you thought about your baptism? As I wrote that down, it's been a long time for me. But baptism is always personal, but never private. Baptism is communication to the body of Christ. I am one of you. I'm identifying myself with the death of Christ and I want to continue to die to my sin. Would you help me? I'm identifying myself with the resurrection of Christ. I desire to live a resurrected life. Would you help me, church? So how would God have you respond and repent like the eunuch? What would prevent me from being baptized if you are not yet? What would prevent you from joining this church, establishing your faith with the body of believers that is part of this church to come alongside you, to encourage you? How may God want you to repent of the lack of remembering your baptism? We remember communion all the time. We're gonna start doing that monthly leading up to, or weekly leading up to Easter where we remember this is his body given for you. This is his blood shed on the cross for you. But how would God want you to remember your baptism? Martin Luther said, we must hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized and through my baptism, God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in a covenant with me.
not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and blot it out. When we leave behind us the things of the world, when we don't trust in the things of the world and we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, friend, he is the greatness of the church. The greatness in the church isn't me. You probably already know that. We fail, I fail, you will fail, but that doesn't excuse sin. And since greatness of the church is Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead by believing this gospel. We can repent of our sins to continue to live according to the scriptures and receive the true joy that that eunuch had, rejoicing because of God's great gifts for us. And when the greatness in the church centers around God and God alone, it leads naturally to repentance. It leads naturally to continued belief, and it leads us to worship, which we'll do with two more songs and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are so great. You are so mighty. You are so good. You are so patient, you are so loving, you are so gentle, you are so kind, you are so merciful. You deserve all of our worship. And as we're honest, we don't always give it to you. God, would you help us to be a worshipful church, to be a church that repents of our sins, that a church that comes alongside one another as we put forth grace-driven effort to follow you and do as you've commanded us and called us to. God, we thank you that this is only possible because of the work of your son who died and gave himself up for us, who was buried, who rose from the dead to give us newness of life. God, would you help us to remember that would you help us to be patient with each other when we forget that and to encourage and admonish one another to love and good deeds as we become people of the word who do the word and proclaim the word to each other in the lost and dying world around us. It's going to be thank you and we praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.